Section 27 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3. Chapter 6. The Fall of the Monarchy. Part 3. After that flight, the king had been suspended. In the manifesto which he had left behind him, Louis had declared that he considered his past oaths enforced by constraint and not binding. In these conditions, the assembly could not trust him, and while it elaborated a new constitution which still might conciliate king and nation, Louis says was considered a state prisoner without authority. The assembly governed in its own name and kept the great seal in its own charge. No cataclysm followed, at least not immediately, and the people began to murmur, We can do without a king. Leaders of the assembly, such as Brissot and Condorcet, began a campaign against the royal automaton. A fanatic doctor named Marat, just then coming into note, declared in an extraordinary burst of prophecy, foreseeing Napoleon before he, so to speak, existed, we want no king but a military dictator. Another party suggested offering the throne to the radical Duke of Orléans, who called himself Philippe Égalité. It was at that moment that the Queen in her despair sent to Barnave an appeal for help and counsel. Barnave, with his friends Lameth and Duport, ruled at that moment the left of the assembly. He declared and believed that it was in his power to reseat the king on his throne if the queen would in all things follow his direction. He, with his friends, seceded from the Jacobin club and inaugurated a new constitutional club and a new constitutional party in the desecrated monastery of the Fouillon or Bernardine, facing the Tuileries Gardens. For some months, till the end of August, there seemed a chance that the Feuillon, as the new club called itself, after all might save the monarchy. When I came back to Paris on the 25th of August, wrote Madame Campon, I found things much calmer than I could have dared to hope. Everyone was talking of the king's acceptation of the constitution, and of the public festivities to which that would give rise. The queen began to hope in a happier order of events, though on the 17th of July she had passed some wretched hours listening to the cannon thundering on the Champ de Mars during the scuffle of the constitutionalists with the Jacobins, who demanded that the king should be tried and judged. On that occasion the constitutionalists had come off best, and Lafayette, by shooting down a sufficient number of the insurgents, had almost provoked a royalist reaction. In September the king accepted the constitution and was greeted by the populace with shouts of gratitude and joy. The word on all lips was, the revolution is now at an end. But revolutions never know where to stop. They advance in great waves, each billow different from and deeper than the last. After the acceptation of the constitution, the constituent assembly had been dissolved or rather had dissolved itself, with the proviso that none of its members might be elected to the new chamber. The elections, therefore, brought into power and place an entirely new set of deputies and officials, men of no experience of the great world of affairs, 
and generally recruited from a much lower class of the population. Those cultured and gifted quatre-vingt-neuvistes, those men of eighty-nine, who hitherto have held the scene, gave place to a class, fanatic and illiterate, which unhappily is not to be the last. A third wave will bring to the surface the terrible dregs of anarchy. The Legislative Assembly met on the 1st of October, 1791. Almost its first act was to declare all the émigrés suspect, to summon them to return to France before the ensuing New Year's Day, 1st of January, 1792, and in case of contumacy to confiscate their estates and possessions and to sentence them to death. As for the priests, 42,000 of them were refractory, they were enjoined to lose no time in swearing allegiance to the state as head of the church. Otherwise they could be considered rebels, and as such liable to instant arrest and imprisonment. When these decrees were presented to the king, he fell into a state of almost demented melancholy. For ten days he pronounced no word even to his family. Perhaps in his dejection he might have given his sanction to these hated laws, for he foresaw the results of his refusal. But Marie Antoinette insisted on the veto, flinging herself at her husband's feet in tragic scenes of entreaty. En employant tantôt des images faites pour l'effrayer, tantôt les expressions de sa tendresse pour lui, as Madame Campon tells us, having witnessed her heart-rending appeal. For six months the king hesitated, procrastinated, torn between his queen and his counsellors, until with either party he lost all credit. At first his Jacques-Examinerey had been received with respect due to the decision of the responsible head of a state but while Louis continued to hesitate, the nation was moving violently. They soon lost contact. In the spring of 1792, the Girondin ministry required the king as the executive power of the people to declare war upon Austria. No measure could be more wounding to the court. The queen was an Austrian princess. Her marriage had been made to cement an Austrian alliance, and even at that hour austria though in arms was still officially the ally of france tamieux cried the queen who had reached the last paroxysm of exasperation but louis when he declared war could not see the paper in his hands for the tears in his eyes he considered his crown the victim of two opposing forces the extremists at home and the invading emigre the war was popular with the nation which for so many centuries had hated Austria. The alliance had never sunk in, so to speak, much deeper than the sphere of the court. But the war was another reason for resenting the influence of l'Autrichienne. The campaign began with grave reverses for the French. Defeats, panics, routs. Nothing in these first disastrous battles presaged the glorious campaigns of the Republic. The troops were ill-prepared and inexperienced. In many regiments, the officers, all noble, had deserted en masse to join the ranks of the returning absentees. And that is how a young Corsican lieutenant in the regiment of La Fere, one Napoleon Bonaparte, found himself unexpectedly a captain. 
there were excuses for defeat but the public did not accept them and awaited the march of the austrians on paris in a mood of increasing exasperation on the fifteenth of june the king affirmed his veto and the public thought him bolder because of the austrian advance there were howls of wrath against monsieur and madame veto on the twentieth the mob invaded the tuileries the king and queen were insulted their lives in danger the populace armed with bill-hooks and pike-staves poured through the palace crying recall the veto recall the veto you have deceived us once take care lest you deceive us again it was says U, the king's faithful valet a walking forest of pikes as on all occasions when courage means calm endurance rather than enterprise or dashing bravery louis showed the most remarkable valour hour followed hour sanction the decrees choose between us and the emigre banish the priests shrieked the insurgents the king with a quiet smile replied that this was not the moment to examine the decrees and that he saw nothing to make him change his opinion and then with that excessive effusion to which he was liable in such times of storm and stress he added i too am a patriot and seizing the red cap of liberty on the head of one of his assailants he donned it himself there was a moment of stupor the fat pale king must have appeared an extraordinary spectacle his dress disordered half the powder shaken out of his hair with that phrygian cap tossing above his shy awkward smile as he stood in front of the excited mob jogging the weight of his great body alternately from one foot on to the other as was his wont it was horribly hot as it often is in paris at midsummer some one produced a bottle of common blue wine and a glass the patriots quenched their thirst and then some one handing the glass to louis he drank too when at six o'clock the mayor at last arrived it was petion one of the two deputies who had fetched the royal family from varennes when petion then turned up festina lente and doubtless hoping to find the king's head on a pike the mob was good-naturedly roaring le roi bois the king drinks as they cry on twelfth night when the reveller who finds the bean in his piece of cake has to pay a glass all round to the rest of the party in fine the king's good humour his unusual firmness too for not a jot did he yield in all that day together with the patience and grace displayed by the queen and madame elizabeth who had their own attack to sustain increased rather than diminished the chances of the constitutionalists the extreme demagogues looked on in dismay the experiment had missed fire a mere flash in the pan one danton a lawyer turned politician whose criminal genius stuck at no scruple resolved that he would try again danton believed with a passionate conviction that the welfare of france required the downfall of the king and by fair means or foul he meant to compass it how could the king conduct a war against the very powers who were hurrying to his defence after the twentieth of june the tuileries seemed far more powerful than they had been before so danton arranged for the tenth of august the final crash danton the titan the giant of the revolution was a man beyond the bounds of good and evil 
a crime did not frighten him however inhuman as we shall see in september if he thought it for the public good he liked to think that he was a sort of surgeon who cutting off the gangrened limb saved the endangered body the raison d'etat appeared to him a higher morality which exonerated all excess whatever the obliquity of his moral sense his mental glance was piercing and direct louis was in secret correspondence with the kings of spain of sweden with catherine of russia with leopold of austria as to the best manner pour arrêter les factieux the queen especially was constantly in touch with the enemies of france on the twenty first of june we find her writing to fession do not be too anxious about me believe that courage always commands respect our last expedient will ensure us time enough for them to come and save us but what long weeks they will be i dare not write more adieu hasten if you can the help that is promised for our deliverance and she adds in sympathetic ink i am still alive but it's a miracle the twentieth was an awful day a few days later on the third of july the queen found means to send another note our position is terrible but i feel quite brave do not be too anxious something within me tells me that we shall be delivered quelque chose qui me dit que nous serons sauvés she repeats the words to madame campon on one of those july nights while the moonlight flooded her bedchamber she said to her faithful friend and follower next month the moon will shine upon me free and the king disengaged from all his chains and she says she was acquainted with the itinerary of the prussian advance and the line of march followed by the french princes on such and such a day they will be at verdun they were about to besiege lille she knew all their stages but she was anxious about what might happen in paris during the interval she spoke of the king's lack of energy the king is no coward he has plenty of passive courage but he is weighed down by shyness and a strange self-diffidence he does not know how to command and the right word does not come readily to his lips as for me i should love to act jump on a horse and ride meanwhile austrians prussians emigres were crossing the frontier the fury of the french became more and more alarming and perfectly comprehensible write petrograd for paris and we of nineteen eighteen understand the situation at one glance lafayette hurried to paris in the hope of aiding the escape of the sovereigns better die cried marie antoinette than be saved by monsieur de lafayette she still hoped poor lady to be saved by the duke of brunswick brunswick with his german faith in the efficacy of terror warned the parisians that not one stone of their city should be left upon another if so much as a hair of king or queen were harmed the threat inflamed to madness the excitable blood of the celts and the french defeat served to fan the fever the drums beat in the streets the great black flag streaming from the towers of notre dame proclaimed the country in danger stands were erected on the public places and on these scaffoldings a registrar with his ledger took down the names of the recruits young and old of every class 
who volunteered for military service. "'You must wait ten days before Brunswick can be in France,' wrote Fession to the Queen. The time seemed intolerably long. "'I wish they would put us in a tower,' said the Queen to Madame Campon, "'in a tower by the side of the sea.' She had once said much the same to Danton. You should put us in a tower for three months and forget us. And they were soon to put her in a tower. The evening of the ninth of August was stifling. All Paris was in the streets. One of those mysterious rumors which rise in a crowd like a groundswell passed from lip to lip. Something is going to happen. At a quarter to twelve the great bell of the Cordelier the franciscan convent where danton presided over the demagogic club rang out in great heavy isolated notes six churches in the neighbourhood responded in the same impressive dreary toll it was the tocsin it was danton in person who had set the bell-ringers to work then he passed to the town hall deposed the town council and installed the new commune of paris the commune insurrectionnelle whose very name is the programme of a riot and the attack on the tuileries was decided if danton had found in front of him another danton there yet might have been a chance in the king's favour at least a famous tug of war at worst a chance to perish gloriously but we know the timid undecided character of the king his horror of bloodshed. If we count the Swiss guards and the gendarmerie of the suburbs, summoned in haste to Paris and massed in the Tuileries in anticipation of an attack, if we count also the royalist gentlemen who on learning the king's danger flocked to the palace summarily armed with anything they could catch, rifles, pistols, swords, rapiers, daggers, and even when cold steel and firearms failed, fire irons, Madame Campin noticed two brave defenders wielding a poker and tongs. Taking then stock of all, the king must have counted close on two thousand defenders, but half of the gendarmes were secretly Jacobins at heart. At dawn, Louis passed them in review. He had no flash of the gay, adventurous, martial spirit which might have lit an electric spark and unified the mass. Mute, preoccupied, dull and apparently only half awake he passed in front of them as pale as death repeating parrot-like in front of every company j'aime la garde nationale so that a little later his artillery joined the insurgents the queen still preached resistance louis thought it hopeless and the royal family headed by the king took refuge in the national assembly which was sitting in the monastery of the Fouillon, situate opposite the tuileries gardens on the site now occupied by the rue de rivoli between the rue de castiglione and the rue saint roch as they passed along the terrace in a storm of insult and derision they looked for the last time on the palace and gardens of the kings of france that night they were housed in a cell of the monastery sleeping on casual shakedowns in the miserable little room with its damp green wallpaper on the morrow they were removed first to the luxembourg then to that great four-squared turreted medieval dungeon of the temple which since the destruction of the bastille did duty in paris for a state prison 
for a few days longer they were nominally king and queen in their captivity but on the twentieth of september the new assembly met under the name of the national convention and declared that there should be no more kings in france but a republic one and indivisible the monarchy had fallen the new order decreed that there should be no more kings yet on the tenth of august when louis the sixteenth with his wife and children were hurrying pale dishevelled along the terrace of the Fouillon, to that refuge which was to prove a waiting-room for the scaffold the king's flight had excited the surprise and contempt of a young artillery officer in the crowd che coglione what adult cried the captain napoleon bonaparte the words still naturally rose in his lips in italian who certainly in the king's place would not have abandoned his solid regiments of swiss at that date he did not imagine that the day would dawn when he would speak more tenderly of my late uncle king louis the sixteenth still less that another french palace should witness his own abdication the monarchy had fallen the fall of louis the sixteenth did not greatly depress the king's brother monsieur invading with the prussian army the frontiers of the northeast farther than those limits he will not get for another score of years and more when he in his turn shall wear the crown of louis the eighteenth and soul of all the sovereigns of france since louis the fifteenth resign it only on his deathbed the monarchy had fallen a handsome empty-pated ignorant obstinate frivolous but not ungenerous prince is hastening from court to court in the attempt to organize a revanche he thinks doubtless of his old crony and confederate marie antoinette and his bigoted but chivalrous heart is full of plans of vengeance he will not save her nor the dauphin a belated perseus he will see the monster of the riding school devour her and her little son before he can snatch from that doom the young princess of france petrified by misfortune into a statue of sad remembrance we shall meet our prince again thirty years later as charles the tenth king for half a dozen years ere he go out again into exile at holyrood or guritz for again the monarchy shall fall another young prince learned in that fateful august with a surprise not wholly unmixed with approval that the monarchy had fallen in france this was the heir of orleans the son of philippe egalite the great-great-grandson of the regent the pupil of madame de genlis that young duke of chartres who was at that time the model the prince charming of all europe brave gifted accomplished liberal and rich with an army of politicians scheming in his favour the young colonel of dragoons in dumouriez's army appeared infinitely more favoured by fortune than the corsican artillery captain but napoleon and the restoration will make him wait his turn not until eighteen thirty will louis philippe ascend the throne of france and he too in his turn shall abdicate and die in exile the monarchy in france has fallen and it shall fall many a time again End of section 27